Listen, when the gospel's compromised, may we not be. May we be willing to stand up and speak out and be immovable in our confession. You're listening to Galatians, a sermon series preached in the fall of 2019 at Shoreline Church. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. Every legalist has a list. Uh, Remember, we've defined a legalist as someone who seeks to add to Christ's finished work something of their own performance. And so if you've been a Christian any number of years, you have probably been inundated or you've come across, you've been confronted with a legalist's list. Uh, It's Christ plus something for salvation. Some groups have said that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Uh, Christ plus baptism. They obviously have never heard of the thief on the cross. Uh, But a group came in the 70s and added to that and said, not just baptized, but you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Father, Son, Holy Spirit's not enough. You have to add in Jesus' name or you're not really baptized. You're not really saved. Some groups have said you have to join our particular church in order to be saved. So they would say Christ plus our specific church. They might say, you know, our church has the only correct doctrine, or our name is the only legit name, or our church is the only one, our gathering is the only one that can be traced back to the original first century church. And thus, in order to be saved, you have to join our particular local church and ours alone. By the way, whenever a denomination or church group claims that they are the only true Christians, you must immediately assume that they are false teachers or a cult. Some people believe in Christ plus tithing. So they would require, they would demand that their members tithe 10% to be saved. And I think that's ridiculous. At Shoreline, we expect 40. (laughs) Some groups think that they have to lay hands on you. The leadership has to lay hands on you. And you have to have an anointing or an appointing. Uh, It's Christ plus an anointing. Some groups say you have to manifest some spiritual gift in particular tongues in order to be sure that you're saved. Even though 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 completely denounce that silliness, some groups still believe Christ plus speaking in tongues means you're saved. The list goes on and on. We can spend hours. Christ plus the correct cast, depending on the, the world, um, area of the world you live in. Christ plus church attendance. Christ plus your ethnicity. A Christ plus nationalism. And many groups say that there are certain sacraments or rites that must be observed in order. In in other words, you have to do those to be saved. And some people, like those in the region of Galatia in the first century, say that you must keep some or all of the Old Testament laws in addition to faith in Christ, otherwise you're not saved, including the rite of circumcision. And so this morning, we're going to see how Paul, an apostle who was sent by God, not man, interacted with some of the pillars of the church, James, Peter, and the leaders in Jerusalem, and how one particular meeting in Jerusalem changed the course of the church forever. And if it weren't for Paul tearing apart the legalistic list that they brought to him, the Gentiles, you and I, may never have come to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so to outline the passage that Dean just read for us, verses 1 through 14, here's going to be our outline. If you're taking notes, jot these down or snap a photo of the screen with your smartphone. We have, first of all, verses 1 through 5, a confirmation 
of Paul's ministry. He's going to be confirmed by the other leaders. Then we're going to see in verses 6 through 10, cooperation between Jerusalem and Antioch. There's great gospel cooperation. We'll talk about how that applies to us. And then we see, though, in verses 11 through 14, confrontation, that Paul actually confronts Peter. And we're going to have the clash of the titans, so, you, so to speak. We, in one corner we have Paul, in the next corner we have Peter. And we'll see how we can apply that to our lives. So that's where we're going today. Uh, if you look back in your Bibles uh, or your journals, your scripture journals, look at verse 1 again. This is the confirmation. Paul says, then after 14 years... After 14 years, maybe after he was saved, we're not sure what a lot of scholars divide on what the 14 years are from, but during that course of time, he says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, remember that name, and then also Titus. I took Titus along with me. Here's why he went up, verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. Here's why. In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So just to keep track, Paul is making sure, he wants to make sure that his ministry, his message is not aimless, that he's not off, that he hasn't been preaching something that is not correct. And we'll get a little more backstory of this interaction in Acts chapter 15. So I want you, if you have your Bibles, to hold your place in Galatians and turn with me to Acts chapter 15. This is the backstory of this chapter Two in Galatians. Acts chapter 15, look at verse 1. Acts 15, 1. This is the writer, uh, Luke. Here's what Luke says in Acts 15, 1. He says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers this unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. There it is. There's the list. It's you got to be circumcised to be saved. So these guys come out of Judea to the church in Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas begin to debate with them and disagree with them. Because as we learned from chapter 1 of Galatians, uh, anyone that brings a different gospel is to be accursed. We're not to listen to them. We're not to bring another gospel and and lend ear to that. And and so um, Paul says anyone that comes with any means of salvation other than grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are not to listen to that message as a Christian. And so Paul didn't say, oh, this is interesting, this is new. No, it says that we began, verse 2, notice, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, right? Because the gospel was at stake in the church. It says Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed by the church in Antioch to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria And on their way, they described in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers. Stay in Acts 15, but just referring back to the scripture reading from Galatians 2, this is not a contradiction. In Galatians 2, Paul says, I went because of a revelation. And here in Acts, Luke says, well, they were appointed by the church. It's not a contradiction. The Spirit was leading Paul, and when the Spirit is truly leading us, the church leadership will be in agreement. Uh, And so you see that this matter in Jerusalem that sprung up was of great importance. The Christian church that we understand today originally came out of the Jewish religion. Okay, It, It kind of came out from Judaism. That is that Jesus himself was a Jewish man who had made great claims about himself and eventually was crucified by the Jewish religious leaders. But we know the rest of the story. We just sang it. He didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead. And now the message of the good news, the gospel message, 
that if you don't know the gospel, it's that you and I are by nature children of wrath, that we have violated the commands of a holy God and we stand condemned before him because of our lawless rebellion. But God has provided a way of salvation through faith in the accomplished work of the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of his perfect sinless son, Jesus Christ. And that through faith in Christ's atoning sacrifice, you and I can be justified or made right with God because of his work. That gospel, that gospel message was being proclaimed to people now that had no Jewish context. They, they didn't have any background in Judaism. They were what we would call Gentiles, okay, Gentiles. I grew up and I heard that word Gentile and I thought it, it was just a, I grew up in Georgia, so I thought it was a country way of saying gentle. So I didn't understand what they meant by that. Now I get it. A Gentile is someone who's not raised in Judaism. They are not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the church in Antioch was a multicultural church that included Jews, but it was primarily Gentile. But the church in Jerusalem was almost exclusively Jewish, a Jewish background. And some of the Jewish Christians who really were comfortable with their tradition and their feasts and their Sabbaths were trying to tell the non-Jewish people among them, the Gentiles, hey, you've got to be circumcised and follow all of the Jewish traditions in order to be saved. When we think about circumcision, and don't worry, I'm not going to go into graphic detail about it today, but the idea is that it was demanded of the Gentiles, very important Jewish rite, and it was handed down from the days of Abraham, according to Genesis 17. So when you submitted to circumcision, that wasn't just like one act that you did, but it meant that you accept and obey all of the Jewish law. You embraced all of it. That was the first step in receiving all of it. And so the Jewish people as a whole had forgotten that there's an inner spiritual meaning behind it. Uh, just like some churches today have lost the true spiritual meaning of baptism, and it just becomes an outward act. Uh, it, it's an external ritual. It has nothing to do with identifying with Christ. And so the true Christian has experienced an inner circumcision of the heart, uh, Colossians 2, 10 and 11 tell us, not made by hands. And so we don't necessarily need to submit to any physical operation. Here's what one scholar said. He said, Paul saw that circumcision for justification was not the innocent little right that the unthinking man might assume it to be. To undergo circumcision was to seek to be justified by a legalistic method of law keeping and thus, here it is, to deny the very foundations of grace. So this is a problem and the problem is who's right? How do we solve these interpretive issues? Remember, at that time, Paul could not say, well, turn to Galatians chapter 1 with me. Let's figure this out. And so we have a group of men, according to Galatians 2, known as the circumcision party. That is some bad marketing on their part. There is nothing to party about. <laughs> and so this group, the circumcision party, was also known as the Judaizers. Okay, you can take note on that. Circumcision party, the Judaizers, or the circumcision. Okay? When Paul and Barnabas confront these men initially in Antioch with the truth of the gospel, according to Acts 15.2, they got in a big debate. This is a big fight. And it was decided the best place to settle this question was before the church leaders in Jerusalem. Let's take it back to the source. Let's see what these guys say. And so they bring it back. They arrive in Jerusalem. Acts 15.2 says they met privately um, with them uh, before they met with the larger group. And if the pillars of the church sided with the Judaizers or tried to compromise, then Paul's ministry would be in jeopardy. His message would now be compromised. And so he wanted to get their approval before he faced the whole assembly. 
Otherwise, a large schism in Christianity could result. And the Gentiles now, you and I, would be forced to keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved. So this argument in the first century, this is an argument for the sufficiency of faith and grace alone. It's what the reformers called sola fide. Uh, uh, That's faith alone or uh, sola gratia, grace alone. And that argument is not new. But listen, for Paul and the early church, literally it was. That was brand new for them. And they had never dealt with this before. And they didn't have sufficient scriptural support to make an informed decision in Antioch. And so when there's a lack of clarity or direction, we, of course, turn to the scripture. And we turn to leaders that we trust. And we turn to lots of them. And so notice verse 4. It says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, again, bad name, they rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Okay, talk about awkward. Even in Jerusalem, especially in Jerusalem, there was debate. This issue needed to be formed uh, or a, a council needed to be formed to clarify this issue. Now, a lot of people would say, well, hold on. The Holy Spirit doesn't work through a council of men. And I agree in part, it depends on who's on the council. (laughs) So uh, if you have a council of just people who are like, yeah, we're just signing bylaws and we need a quorum and we're just going to make motions and appeals and and we're not men led by God and we're not men of God, then I agree. Then that's not necessarily led by the Spirit. But uh, these men are a group of men who knew Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who loved Jesus. They listened to Jesus. They submitted to Jesus. And they heeded the word and counsel of Jesus. So listen, I like to say it this way. If the counsel of man is submitted to the counsel of God, see what we did there? Then it's worth listening to. Or we could say it this way. Um, God's counsel, different word, can sometimes work through man's counsel. Does that make sense? You follow me? Sometimes God can do that. And so look at verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. These are the original apostles of Jesus. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, He had quite a habit of doing that, didn't he? He stood up and said this, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. This is about 10 or so years after uh, Peter and Cornelius. Now therefore, verse 10, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, Amos 9, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild the ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So James Uh, quotes this great foreshadowing of God calling the Gentiles by name. 
Now, here's James's final analysis. Look at verses 19 through 21. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood, uh, these sacrifices that have been put to death and offered to idols. And for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So just to recap, clearly from this, the Judaizers who added circumcision and a strict adherence to the Old Testament law in order to be saved on top of faith in Christ, they mingled those two as necessary for salvation. Clearly they're wrong. And the church council of Jerusalem decreed and declared they're wrong. They send out a letter, it gets distributed, brings great encouragement to the church, and the rest is what we call church history. See, the problem with keeping the law as a prerequisite for salvation is that the law is powerless to save. Now, notice that Peter pointed that out back in verse 10. Uh, He said, I think we have it on the screen, why place a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Listen, at Shoreline, we don't believe as Protestants that the law should be dismissed or rebelled against. And we'll be studying the place of the law in the believer's life in the next few months. But sufficient for our time together today is just to establish that the law, church, is powerless to save. We'll learn more about this next week. But the law is much like a mirror. Uh, It reveals to you what you look like. And so in the morning, it reveals to some of us that we desperately need to shave. Some of us more than others. But the mirror is powerless to reach out and shave you. It just shows you your condition. So the law exposes sin. It defines transgression. It gives clarity on what is right and what is wrong. It identifies what is crooked and what is straight. And it sets boundaries on what is acceptable to God and what is unacceptable. But it does not, though it shows you your condition, does not have the power to help you achieve salvation. The law tells you what's wrong, but it doesn't help you get right. So this was settled in Jerusalem in Acts 15 with the Jerusalem Council. And this would have greatly encouraged the Gentile believers and set the stage for churches like those in Galatia to succeed. So with that in mind, let's turn back to Galatians chapter 2. Very good. You guys were with me. Look at verse 1 again. We're going to move fast. He says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. This is that story. With Barnabas, a little extra detail, I took Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, notice he calls them false brothers, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. That's what the law does when you keep it for salvation. It's just bondage. It's a yoke. It's slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. See, Paul here summarizes his posture in Jerusalem with these Judaizers. Notice he brought Barnabas, but then here in Galatians he also points out he brought Titus. Now we've heard about Barnabas this whole time. Who's Titus? Well, Titus, if you're taking note, he was a Gentile Greek. You can just jot that down, a Gentile Greek. And according to this, he chose not to be circumcised. Paul brought him along with Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas are both Jews. They've both been circumcised. Here's Titus. He's a Greek. He's not been circumcised. 
And so Paul was kind of saying in a, in a great test case or a great example, kind of an analogy, he's like, hey, here's, Par- here's Barnabas and I, and we're an example of Jews who uh, have completed, we're completed Jews, we're now following Jesus in faith, and here's an example of a Gentile, and he's not chosen to be circumcised. And, and so this meant that Titus did not adhere to any of the Old Testament ceremonial law. Now, someone might be going, well, wait a minute, hold on, Pastor, what about Timothy? What about Timothy? Because Timothy was circumcised. Paul had him circumcised. So is this a waffling on Paul's convictions? Did Paul just treat one disciple one way and another? Like, this seems unfair. Well, if you look at the case of Timothy, two different issues are involved. Timothy, um, Paul was not submitting to Jewish law in order to win him to Christ. Timothy was part Jew, part Gentile. He had mom and dad. And so his lack of circumcision would have hindered his ministry among the people of Israel. Titus, however, was a full Gentile. And so for him to have submitted to circumcision would have indicated that he was missing something from his Christian experience. Uh, That would have been cowardice and compromise. And if Paul would not have circumcised Timothy, that would have created unnecessary problems in his ministry. So you guys see the difference? Paul brings Titus along to prove firsthand circumcision, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament is unnecessary for salvation. It's all by faith in Christ. Here's what one person said. said, Paul took Titus to Jerusalem as a test case for the whole issue of salvation by grace apart from circumcision. With Titus, Paul was forcing the issue of grace to come out in the open so it could be dealt with by all the apostles. Paul's plan was to have the Judaizers rebuked by all the apostles for teaching false doctrine. The Judaizers taught that circumcision was necessary for a person to be saved, but Titus was a living example that this belief was totally false. So Paul's ministry was confirmed, and this allowed cooperation between his ministry in Antioch and the ministry in Jerusalem. So with that in mind, let's look at our second idea, cooperation. Look at verses 6 through 10 with me. Paul says, and from those who seem to be influential, I love his little, that's not snarky, but it sounds like it. Those who seem to be influential, and he says, well, what they are, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, uh, he, he skipped down to verse 9, Uh, It says, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So notice with me, they added nothing. Jerusalem Council didn't add anything to Paul's ministry or message. His ministry wasn't deficient in any way. But something needed to be subtracted from the Judaizers' message and ministry. And that was the purpose of the council. So at the close of that council, Paul and Barnabas are given encouragement to go with that message. Don't forsake the poor, but preach the gospel. And notice that word in verse 7, that they've been entrusted. He says in verse 7, that I've been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised. And Peter also was entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Circle that word with me or highlight it. The word they're entrusted in both of those references can also be translated committed. It's from a Greek word that implies a permanent commission. Very fascinating word. It's the word that was used of the imperial secretary of the emperor. In other words, the actual emperor of Rome, his secretary, is that word. 
It's someone who's been commissioned by the emperor who represents them and who actually speaks on their behalf. And they're the, the imperial official designated spokesperson. And Paul is essentially saying, hey, we as apostles are imperial secretaries, not of Caesar, but of Christ. Not of this king, but the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus. He has given us, he's entrusted to us the message of the New Testament. And, and so Paul and Peter were both entrusted with two different, very different ministries. Paul to the uncircumcised, the Gentile, and Peter to the circumcised. They were entrusted with their ministries, just like you and I have been entrusted with the ministry of the gospel in our generation, in our community. Paul was given a trust, you could say. And he was not to fumble the message. I've been watching football lately. Someone has given the ball and they fumble it on the team. Right? You're not to do anything fancy with it. Just don't fumble it. Just take the, take the ball and get across the line. Don't fumble the message. Don't adapt the message. Don't alter the message. Just simply deliver the message. So you and I have been entrusted with the gospel, and we're just simply to be faithful with what we've been entrusted with. So I would say this, pastors are not to draw conclusions in the white spaces of their Bibles. We call this bad hermeneutics or eisegesis, and it has nothing to do with the name Jesus. It's spelled differently. Uh, we don't need to amplify the good news. We just need to announce it, right? We've been entrusted with the gospel. We need to be good stewards of the gospel. But note, note the great gospel co cooperation here. We have two distinct ministries with the same message, but to two totally different audiences. I love this. One is to the Gentile, one to the Jew. We never compromise the message because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Amen? We never compromise the message. But that means sometimes cooperating with ministries that are different than ours where there isn't necessarily agreement in secondary issues. As long as we agree on the primary, the main thing, keep the main thing the plain thing and the plain thing the main thing, one person said. As long as we keep that the main thing, the secondary issues we may disagree with, but we can still cooperate with them. Now, I'm not talking about churches that do ministry in an unbiblical way or worse, they change the gospel. I'm not talking about that. In those situations, we are going to be divided uh, because they're in error. But I love seeing gospel cooperation when two ministries disagree on secondary issues but are united in the primary issue of the gospel. Uh, we went to the Bridge of Life dinner recently, and guys, I heard they raised over $40,000 for Bridge of Life at that dinner, which is just awesome. Praise God. Yeah, super cool. That was less than excited. If you know what Bridge of Life does, you'd be really clapping, but <laughs> thank you. Good try. Now, to hear the different churches that are involved that disagree in our community about secondary issues, but to hear the roster of church names was greatly encouraging. There's churches banding together because we come together around a more important issue than the secondary issues that we kind of disagree about. I love seeing gospel cooperation. Now, up to this point, the council in Jerusalem went awesome. Paul had persuaded Peter, James, and Jerusalem leadership to discount the Judaizers and hold to grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Awesome. Gentiles can now access the gospel of grace through faith apart from the law. Great. Now, I wish we could just stop there, close our Bibles, and dismiss for the day. Have a great Sunday, and we'll see you next week for baptisms. I would love to be able to proclaim that. But a little problem occurs when one of these pillars, guess who it is, of course, it's Peter, uh, Peter decides to visit Paul's church in Antioch. This is years later, and Peter stopped practicing what he preached. 
So let's look at confrontation in verse 11. And yes, when we're in the Lord, we have to confront sometimes. So look at verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when he came, or when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing, here's that phrase again, the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews, those who came from a Jewish background, they acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, you want to circle that phrase, in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Whoa, hashtag fight club. All right, this, it's on. Now, notice that Paul uses the phrase, the term Cephas um, in verse 11. Maybe that's in a um, tongue-in-cheek way. Uh, maybe he's employing a little sarcasm. He's saying, yeah, Cephas also known as the rock, like the pillar of the early church. He was acting in a way that was a little shaky. He came down to Antioch. Um, Peter, in a moment, uh, reminiscent of that cowardice that he had before that young girl, before the fire, when Jesus was being questioned and on trial. Remember that? Uh, Peter's having a moment reminiscent of that where he decides that peer pressure is more credible than God's perspective. And Peter's fear trumped the truth of the gospel. He was allowing the fear of man to be a snare for him. And obviously that didn't fly with Paul, so Paul confronts Peter in front of everyone. Why? Because Peter knew better. Peter had already come to understand that God did not require the Gentiles to come under the law of God to be saved. Remember that whole animal dream back from from Acts chapter 10, remember that, where Peter sees the sheep come down and the animals and, and God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. You guys remember that? By the way, God, men, that would be a great name for a men's retreat. I would love that if we go away for the weekend. We go camping and hunting. We call it rise, kill and eat. Can we, can we put that together? <laughs> anyway, well, let's make it happen. Um, remember that? Rise, kill and eat. Peter says, no, Lord. And God says, you know, no, Lord, really? And, and God corrects Peter and says, listen, what I've called clean, do not call common. Remember that? And he's speaking about these unclean animals, and it's a, a picture of the Gentiles. And so um, that was Acts 10. Remember the Jerusalem council we literally just read? Peter said, this is a yoke that we can't bear. Listen, church, this wasn't a lack of understanding on Peter's part. It was a lack of courage. Peter was in Antioch, Paul's home church fellowshipping with the Gentiles. But as soon as James's posse shows up from Jerusalem, they walk the 15-day, 300-mile journey down the Via Maris Road. They get there, and Peter suddenly sees them walk in, and he pulls away from the Gentiles. Maybe they were maybe sitting at the Gentiles' lunch table. They were at Fellowship Sunday, and they brought a potluck, and he's sitting with them. And then, uh-oh, James's guys showed up from Jerusalem, and so let me sit with them at the cool table. I don't want to be seen with these guys over here. We don't know the exact situation, but it's clearly hypocrisy, and it shows preference and partiality in the fear of man. To draw back from the Gentiles in front of the Judaizers church, here's what it communicates. It communicates to the Gentiles that you lack something, that you're inferior, that you're second class, you're a coach Christian, but the Jewish believers are first class. Here's what Martin Luther said. Peter did not say so, but his example said quite plainly that the observance of the law must be added to faith in Christ, the truth of the gospel, if men are to be saved. 
From Peter's example, the Gentiles could not help but draw the conclusion that the law was necessary unto salvation. And we could apply this in a number of ways about how we're to include people, but Paul saw this public sin, so he called it out publicly. He said, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And this, actually, this hypocrisy even affected Paul's mentor, Barnabas. Now, notice in verse 11 that Paul says, he was clearly in the wrong, so I opposed him to his face. How difficult do you think that would have been for Paul to confront Peter, one of the first original 12 disciples? And yet, this helps us understand Paul's authority as an apostle, okay? Here was another apostle living contrary to the gospel and compromising the reality of grace alone in our salvation. And so another apostle appointed by God confronts him. Paul saw he's clearly in the wrong, so he said something. He confronted him. Now, how often do you and I, we see Christians in the wrong and we just ignore it? We just sit back. We keep our mouths shut. I've even seen people go as far as helping to hide um, sin, to keep it a secret. And when we do that, that becomes sin on our part. So Paul could have just said, ah, that was icky. I'm going to overlook that. And when Peter leaves, I'll try to do some damage control. But no, he realizes we've got to deal with this now. Otherwise, there could be a huge break in Christianity. So notice in verse 14, again, he says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I had you circle that phrase, highlight that phrase. Not in step. Here's what the New King James does to translate this. I think this is a very accurate way of translating it. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Straightforward. That word not in step or straightforward is the Greek word where we get literally the word orthopedic. If you could see this in Greek, it's almost the word orthopedic. The word ortho means straight and pedic means feet or steps. So the idea here is that we have straight feet or straight steps that we're walking straight, that it's straightforward. Paul is saying they were not walking the correct way that a believer is to walk. They weren't walking straight. And and it needed to be corrected because it was out of step. It was out of line with the truth of the gospel. Now, how often, church, do we see our brothers and sisters in Christ not walking straight? And so we go to them to encourage them to walk straight in step with the gospel. We say to our brothers in Christ, hey, bro, watching internet pornography is not conduct in step with the gospel. Bro, you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been set free. And that's not a little struggle. That's sexual immorality. And at the root of it, it's idolatry. Bro, you worship Jesus now. We find our delight and our pleasure in Jesus, not in that vain idol. Brother, you need to lay that idol down at the altar. Stop entertaining yourself with content that crucified Christ. You're not having conduct in step with the gospel. How often do we do that? How often, ladies, do we say, listen, sister, stop spreading slander about another Christian sister. That's gossip. That's destructive. And you're separating close friends. It's not in step with the gospel. How often do we say to dads, dads, stop neglecting your family and laying them at the altar of your leisure or your work. That's not in step with the gospel. Hey, hey, brother, I know you're unmarried today, but you're sleeping with your significant other before marriage. Dude, that's not conduct in step with the gospel. If you're lying or you have hatred or ambition that's selfish or bitterness or addiction, as a Christian, that's not conduct in step with the gospel. Now, often what happens, and this has maybe happened to you, is a follower of Jesus goes to another follower of Jesus 
to speak to them about their conduct. Again, conduct, sin, not just things you don't like. Like, I hate your shoes today. Your shoes are horrible. I just need to talk to you about that. No, sinful behavior. And the person they, speaks to, they speak to rejects them. I know of at least two circumstances, two totally different church communities. Newer Christians began in their faith. They were baptized and confirmed by the elders. They were saved. They began to, on Facebook, post vitriol. In fact, they started posting profanity. They were saying this and this, the F-bomb. It was, it was all over their Facebook profiles. And so some other believers, not publicly, but even privately went to them uh, and messaged them, tried to get with them and say, hey, you know, I just want to encourage you, not in a mean way, but just like, I want to encourage you, like, dude, like profanity is not in step with the gospel. We're, we're to proclaim good news, not bad news. And that new believer ended up totally disagreeing and leaving the church over it. Uh, that happens sometimes, but we need to have the boldness of Paul to confront people who are living lives out of step with the gospel. But we also need the humility of Peter to receive the loving correction of others when we do sin and to repent and to submit our lives to Christ and to one another. The assumption from this text is that Peter listened to Paul. He didn't argue with Paul. He acknowledged his sin and repented. Now, to bring this home to us here in 2019, uh, I want us to apply this passage of Scripture together. So here's how we're going to do it. Um, typically, when we think about confronting others or when someone confronts us, uh, we have this psychological idea out there called fight or flight. How many of you have heard of fight or flight? Have you guys heard of this? All right. So both of you have heard of it. Great. So fight or flight, typically, based on our personality, we tend to lean into one of these two uh, more heavily. Maybe both, but that would be weird. We go out swinging, I guess. Um, fight or flight. Fight when, someone, when you see sin or someone sees sin in you, you might be a fighter. Someone um, told me recently that they are both Irish and angry, okay? They would apply. They would apply, all right? <laughs> they qualify. You're someone who's a fighter. You like to stir up the hornet's nest. You like to get the record straight. You're, you've heard of people dying on hills. You're like, I like to live on the hill. I camp out there. <laughs> The view on the hill is lovely, and <laughs> so I'm going to just hang out up here, all right? Most fighters today, and wives, please don't nudge your husband. I know you're thinking of doing it, and husbands, your wife, don't do it, okay, because flight is coming, uh, but uh, the fighter has very little filter or no filter. They shoot from the hip. They call it like they see it. They love to tear down and manipulate. There are some marriages where the um, wife sees something in the husband or some area of failure, and she's just um, keeping a record of wrongs done years ago, and she just chips away at him and just constantly fighting, 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 fighting. Listen, that's sin. That has nothing to do with personality. That's sin. I'm not listening to that psychobabble nonsense that says, well, that's my ethnicity. Just people in this type of community are like that. No, that's sin. There's no pride in being a fool. I don't care if you're Irish or Iraqi. It doesn't matter. You're sinning. Okay? So some of us are not fighters, but we're those who we would call flight, fight or flight. So our reaction is to flee. So rather than deal with the situation, someone confronts us or we should confront someone, what do we do? We just kind of avoid them. We excuse or enable it. We run from the confrontation. We walk out of the room. In marriage, here's what this looks like. You play the silent card. You sleep on the couch, you leave for a walk or for a drive. I just need to clear my head. We're going to stop talking. In fact, we're just going to stop talking to those relatives that annoy us. Uh, we're going to withhold forgiveness, go to a second service. We're going to change the subject. We're going to run from relationship to relationship or problem to problem because you never really deal with the problem because you don't know how to deal with it because you just know to run. 
Just run, just run, just escape, just flee, flight. Listen, that's also sin. Running from an issue doesn't solve it. It doesn't produce repentance or growth in your spouse or in that person if you're to confront them. Uh, It doesn't allow reconciliation or the redemptive work of Christ, uh, our creator God, to reform them by exposing their sin and calling it out and seeing reconciliation and the gracious healing work of the Holy Spirit in a relationship. And it doesn't allow that person to hear that good feedback and to change. So listen, when you fight against people and humiliate them because of their sin and you want to intimidate them, that's sin. But when we ignore sin and we just say, I'm having grace on them, that's the fear of man, and that's also sin. So is there a third option, fight or flight? I think the third option is right here in the text. Paul says, I opposed him to his face. I think the third option is face. We need to face the issue, face the problem. Not in a fight mentality, but to rightly, completely, immediately, and fully face the issue. I like to say it like this. When there's an elephant in the room, go ahead and introduce him. There's an elephant in the room. Hey, this feels awkward. Can we bring it up? That's not being annoying. That's what I call grace-filled confrontation. You guys follow me? Grace-filled confrontation. So here's grace-filled confrontation. You take the speck out of your, your own eye before you go to your brother. So there's that. That's first. Then there's prayer. There's humility. There's wise timing. There may be a bad timing. There's understanding. There's empathy. But there's intercession. There's patience, there's meekness, there's self-control in that confrontation. Grace-filled confrontation is not easy, but it's biblical. Matthew 18 gives us a template. We're to go to that brother. If they don't listen, then we go with another brother or sister who knows the situation. They don't listen. We go before the church leadership, say this person's not acting in a way that's in step with the gospel. If the church leadership go to them and they still blow them off, then we move into church, all of its church discipline, but we really move beyond that. Uh, deeper into that and we say we need to really expose this sin this person's not living like they're a Christian so we doubt they are a Christian until they repent Uh, now someone might say well wait 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 wait. hold on pastor time out why did Paul not follow Matthew 18 here why did he go directly to Peter in front of everybody well listen we're not to use Matthew 18 regarding pastor elders in the church there's a different template for that Notice on the screen, 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20, says this, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, so if it's been exposed and they still sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So the private one-on-one confrontation of grace is not applicable when when a pastor elder teaches something publicly that's false. If it's publicly taught, Okay? It should be publicly condemned because it was publicly decreed. you guys follow me? So when we're talking about teaching, if someone gets up and does false teaching, they should be called out. Go to them first, sure, but it should be called out. Um, we have to concede that perhaps that pastor misspoke and clarified what he misspoke publicly and said, oh, I made a mistake, but maybe that public um, statement was not well circulated. We have to concede to that. We also have to pray that perhaps his elders confronted him and he said, yeah, I was totally wrong and he reached out to the church family to correct what he taught poorly. We've got to give him that concession. We're all to be Bereans, church, so if I ever teach something that is not in accordance with sound doctrine, believe me, I will hear it from the elders, all right? And that's a good thing. That's a great thing. But if something's ever taught from this pulpit that's not sound, please communicate that uh, to me. And if I refuse to listen, 
then please seek the counsel of the other pastors here. That's, that's called being a Berean. That's called biblical uh, truth. Now, when a, an, a pastor elder has conduct publicly that is contrary to the gospel, then it should be called out publicly. When it's private, 1 Timothy 5.19 seems to allude that you don't admit that charge until there's two or three witnesses. And so elders should be involved in that. And if the pastor elder does not repent, well, then they should be removed from office, just like a professing believer should not be called a Christian if they're um, not willing to walk in a manner in step with the gospel. They should see the severity of their sin. So Peter was an elder. Peter sinned publicly. Paul, a fellow elder, faced the sin and dealt with it rightly. And thankfully, Peter repented. I would have been a little nervous. This is the guy that cut people's ears off he, he didn't like. So I'd be a little bit nervous, thankfully. In this case, he listened and repented. Now, as we close, I'm going to invite our worship team back up, and we're going to close in a song of dedication. And this song celebrates the fact that God does not change. Peter seemed to change his mind and give in to pressure. But our God sits in the heavens. He's immovable. He's unshakable. He's eternal. And even when you and I are faithless and we make mistakes, God remains faithful. As we close this morning, notice with me what verse 5 does not say. Verse 5 does not say Paul yielded to them so that he could preserve the peace of the church. It doesn't say that, does it? This time of year we celebrate Reformation Day. But even the Protestant Reformation would never have happened without people who are willing to stand up for truth even when it threatened their lives. Note that word Protestant. It has the word protest within it. Listen, when the gospel's compromised, may we not be. May we be willing to stand up and speak out and be immovable in our confession. May we echo the words of Martin Luther who said this. He said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Praise God for men like Luther and for men like Paul. To close this morning, Charles Spurgeon said this, it must have been very painful to Paul's feelings to come into conflict with Peter, whom he greatly esteemed. But yet, for the truth's sake, he knew no persons, and he had to withstand even a beloved brother when he saw that he was likely to pervert the simplicity of the gospel and rob the Gentiles of their Christian liberty. For this, I love this, as we close, for this we ought to be very grateful to our gracious God who raised up this brave champion, this beloved apostle of the Gentiles. Amen. Will you stand with me this morning as we close in prayer and in worship. We're gonna be singing, singing about God's faithfulness. I wanna pray this morning a prayer from the book a Puritan prayer is called the Valley of Vision. So bow your heads with me and I want to pray this prayer for us. It's called Requests. Oh God, may I never be a blot or a blank in life. May I never cause the way of truth to be evil spoken of. May I never make liberty an occasion to the flesh. May I by love serve others and please my neighbor for his good to edification. May I attend to what is ornamental as well as essential in the faith pursuing things that are lovely and of good report. May I render my profession of the gospel not only impressive, but amiable and inviting. May I hold the way of Jesus with my temper as well as my tongue, with my life as well as my lips. May I say to all I meet, I am journeying towards the Lord's given place. Come with me for your good.
May I be prepared for all the allotments of this short, changing, uncertain life with a useful residence in it, a comfortable journey through it, a safe passage out of it. May I never be ashamed of Jesus or his words. May I never be deterred from fulfilling a known duty through fear, and may I never be discouraged from attempting it through weakness. May I see all things in a divine light so that they may inform my judgment and sanctify my heart. And by all the disciplines of your providence and all the ordinances of the faith, may I be increasingly prepared for life's remaining duties, the solemnities of a dying hour, and the joys and services that lie beyond the grave. Father, that's our prayer this morning, that we would never be ashamed of the gospel, that we would be bold and willing to stand up for truth, just as our brother Paul was, that the Gentiles might hear, know, and be justified. We thank you for the truths we've learned today. Now, Lord, allow us to sing back to you your faithful love as we celebrate it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.